Morning, everyone. Very good to see you. Good to be with you. Um, we are in the middle of a series, as many of you will know, on the good news. And we've been asking a couple of questions. The first was, what is this good news? Well, it's the wonderful announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to set us free from sin and death and hell. And then we've been asking why. Why is this good news such good news? And why should we engage in helping others to know about Jesus? And we've got five answers in this series. The first was the glory of God, which is basically the reason for everything. Last week, heaven and hell. Today, we're going to look at election, then the beauty of God and the Great Commission. I've got a passage to read to you today before we launch into the subject of election that is packed with so much stuff. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, down to verse 12, goes like this. I hope it will warm your heart as you hear these amazing words from Paul writing to this church in Ephesus. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. My goodness, that's packed. Now, here's my request for you this morning. I want you to engage your heads. If you need to wake yourself up a little bit, give yourself a slap. I want you to engage your heads this morning. I want you to engage your hearts as well this morning. This is a deep dive. I'll try and make it as accessible as possible, but this is a heavyweight deep dive. So engage your heads. You've got your heads on. got your hearts soft and ready. Lord Jesus, we ask you for help, for surely we need it. Holy Spirit, thank you, you are here. Thank you, you are our teacher. Thank you, Father, that you are receiving us and welcoming us to run into your arms. We thank you that you are for us, with us, instructing us. Help us this morning, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. The term election is used various times in the New Testament, and it's very similar to the words chosen and predestined, which we found here in Ephesians chapter 1. It means those God has selected. Those who are God's children have been elected by him to that wonderful status. So here in Ephesians chapter 1, we read these things amongst many others. Verse 4, he chose us in him 
That word means, as you would understand, selected by deliberate choice. And he did so before the creation of the world, before anything had been created. Verse 5, we read that in love, he predestined us, which means to foreordain or to appoint beforehand, before the creation of the world, for adoption to sonship. Verse 11 kind of repeats some of the same things. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, the same word as in verse 5, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Election, as I hope to show you, is a glorious subject. And there are various questions around it too. But there are essentially two ways of understanding this term, this idea of election. On one side, there's the idea that every human being ever created has an equal opportunity to respond to God in salvation. Right? Every single human being has an equal chance to respond to God for salvation. Faith would come before election. God sees down time, sees, because he knows everything, sees who will respond to him in faith, and those are the ones he elects. You with me? One view. The other view is this. The other view says that no human being who's ever existed has any potential to respond to his offer of salvation because they are dead, spiritually dead. And therefore, God elects And because he has elected, they come to faith. Over here, faith precedes election, if you like. Over here, election precedes the possibility of faith. Please try and hold those two together. Now, both of those views have their strengths and their weaknesses. And it's led to serious debate over the centuries. Churches split on this, uh, or churches have divided Denominations are divided on this matter too. Here's my advice. My advice is this, that in such matters, we should approach with care because we are treading on theologically complex ground. I think it's sometimes, here's one instance, where it's very helpful to remember what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Mirrors in those days weren't like mirrors in our day. They were sort of shiny bits of metal that you could see in and you could kind of, yeah, I'm sure that's my face in there somewhere. Can't see it very distinctly. Sometimes, don't you find sometimes when you read the Bible, it's like, well, I can see, but I'm struggling to see. We see dimly like in a mirror, an old mirror. We should approach with care and we should approach with humility because we're standing on a holy ground where our understanding will at some point inevitably falter. So I want to come carefully and I want to come humbly this morning and say, here's what I understand by the doctrine of election. It's the second view over here, that God elects the spiritually dead and enables them to put faith in Jesus Christ. One writer, therefore, writes a typical definition of election, which he says is this. Election is an act of God before creation. We read that. 
in which he chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Here's what I'm going to do. I want to give you two amazing things about this doctrine of election. The first that helps us to see why this good news is quite so good and extraordinary. And the second that will help us see why we should be helping and engaging with others to come to know Jesus. And then I'm going to look at some questions that this inevitably raises. The first amazing thing is this, that the doctrine of election tells us that God saves those who can do nothing to save themselves. Anybody here know you could do nothing to save yourself? So Ephesians chapter 2, just over the page in verse 1, says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Down to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. See, by nature, I I think it's true to say the consistent message of the Bible is this, that by nature, every single person is not spiritually unwell, but spiritually dead with no potential to do anything for themselves. No one can respond to God's offer of salvation until God does something in the dead person. The dead cannot raise themselves. The dead can do nothing. You may be well aware of that. God has to come and give life so that the dead can respond to him. There's a song I don't know if you do this as well. If you find a new song that you, list, that you like listening to, do you sort of play it to death? Over, yeah, you do say over and over. I've been singing a song recently, uh, listening to a song that has these words in it. Listen carefully. I was found before I was lost. I was yours before I was not. I was chosen, if you're a Christian, you were chosen before you ever did anything wrong, before you ever existed, because it says here in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, you were found before you were lost. It's absolutely magnificent. For all the questions that this view of election raises, it preserves and it magnifies the great message of the Bible, which is the grace of God. Aren't you glad God is gracious? Aren't you amazed and overwhelmed that he chooses us despite us? In fact, he chose us before the foundation of the world. For all the complications, this view of election holds together the big message of the Bible that God is gracious. You see, we can't even take any credit for turning and responding to God until he worked in us to cause us to do so. The dead man can be raised to life truly by nothing in himself. He has no potential at all. It is all grace. Praise God for that. Number two, amazing thing. Election, listen carefully, motivates us to help others know about Jesus. This is where the rubber of election hits the road of this series. 
And that statement, number two, that I just gave you might, if you're listening carefully, might surprise you because you might be thinking, well, if before time began, God has elected and predestined and chosen those who will belong to him and be his children, what's the point in helping other people to know about Jesus? He's decided anyway. So one writer says this, some fear that belief in the sovereign grace of God in election leads to the conclusion that evangelism is pointless since God will save his elect anyway. This is a false conclusion based on a false assumption. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing, listen carefully, that prevents evangelism from being pointless. Why, he goes on, it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. For God has elected many to salvation. I was thinking this morning of Sarah uh, Hayward in this church here who was doing, I think, a GCSE class and met someone there called Sally And I can imagine Sarah, let's say Sarah is very sure about the doctrine of election. God chooses those whom he will save. And Sarah's sitting in this class and she's thinking, well, there's no point talking to this new friend Sally about Jesus because if God wants to have her, he'll get her. Which is what the view of election can lead you to if wrongly understood. However, the right thinking is this way round that says Sarah's sitting in this class thinking, God, I'm not sure if Sarah really had this big theological discussion in her mind sitting in this class, but anyway, I'm, you know, go along with me. Sarah's sitting in this class and she's thinking, no, I know from Ephesians chapter 1 and all through the New Testament that God has chosen those who will be his. Guess what? Who knows? Maybe Sally's one of them. Because I know he has elected many. Guess what happens? Sarah invites Sally to Christmas a couple of years ago. Guess what happens? Sally does trust in Jesus and finds that she is among those God has chosen. If God has decreed that someone will come to saving faith, you can be sure his will will be done and that he will arrange the means for that to come about. In Sally's case, Sarah. God's sovereign election, you see, and our praying and preaching and witnessing go hand in hand. Imagine this. If I willed that there should be an extension on the back of my house, and I've got the planning in place, and I've got the resources to do it, you can be sure it's going to get done. But the fact that I've willed it to be done doesn't mean I don't need some help. The way in which my will gets done is through employing others to do it. It's good news for the builders that I will an extension on the back of my house because I'm going to employ them in seeing my will come about. That's very much how it is with God and election. It's an encouragement to mission. It's an encouragement to befriend our neighbors. It's an encouragement to see, I wonder what God will do with my colleagues, with my family, and so on through me. It's a motivation to getting the good news out there. Let me give you an example from Acts chapter 18. Paul is in Corinth. And he's obviously having a tough time. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. 
and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, what does the doctrine of election help me to do here, help Paul to do here? God reminds him, I have many people in this city. I've chosen that I will save people in this city. Here's what Paul does. Well, here's what Paul doesn't do. Sit back. Come on then, God. I clearly don't need to do anything. You've elected people to salvation. No. What Paul does, as you may well know, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Why did he do that? Because he knew it would be fruitful. Because he knew God has determined that many will be his. Why should we engage in helping others to know about Jesus? Because God has chosen many for salvation and we will be part of the means of them coming to salvation through our praying, our preaching, our witnessing. So your friend, your colleague, your work mate, your family member, it's not, it's not like this. Well, I, I hope they can work Jesus out. Or I really hope I can convince this person, this work colleague of mine, that they should be a Christian. It's not like that. It's like Sally and Sarah. It's like, God, you, your word is full of your sovereign activity in choosing people. I'm going to engage because I know that you're going to use me as part of that. It's such good news. It's such motivation for us to be helping people come to know Jesus. Now, some of you, your brains are switched on and you're ticking. Well, your brains are ticking. I hope you're not ticking. Your brains tick. So as for soft hearts and heads that are thinking, your brains are ticking. You see, this is magnificent news, but all of which, no doubt, raises some questions. If this isn't raising questions, you need to give yourself another slap and wake up. This should be raising some questions. I'm going to look at three questions here briefly. The first question is this, on this magnificent news... Does God's election make him, therefore, unjust? You see, if God elects some to salvation and not others, doesn't that mean he's unjust? And treating people unequally or unfairly, favoring some over others. Well, it's a question that Paul anticipates in his discussion in Romans about Election in the book of Romans, he says exactly this. He's imagining someone debating with him, questioning him. He says, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? When I was a PE teacher for four years, every now and again you'd get a, a set of 30 lads in a class and you'd just divide them into teams. You couldn't be bothered to go through the process. You'd say, oh, let's just get on with it. One, two, one, two, one, two. What was I, sir? Well, one, two, one, two, one, two, and you'd go around and do it like that. If, if God's election was cold and mechanistic like that, then he surely would be unjust. But we know that election cannot be like, well, you're a one, you're not. You're a one, you're not. You're a one, you're not. It cannot be like that because God is not cold. Or mechanistic. So Paul's answer to his hypothetical questioner in Romans 9 is this. Not at all. And he goes on 
to quote some of the Old Testament. For he says to Moses, centuries before, I, God saying, will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying this to his hypothetical questioner. God is not unjust in not choosing some, for none deserve to be chosen anyway. Rather, he is gracious, merciful, compassionate in choosing any. If God were simply to exercise justice, none would be chosen. That would be justice without mercy. And let me remind you of this as well. Election, choosing, predestination has to be seen within the entirety of God's attributes. Is God good? Yes. <laughs> Is God holy? Yes. Is he just? Yes. Is he merciful? Yes. When we look at election, we do so within the framework of the entirety of God's attributes. So he is loving in predestining. He is good in election. He is holy in choosing. At any point, and there will be a point, I have a point, at any point where election or predestination seems to mess with his attributes, it is our understanding that has failed, not his goodness. Question number one. Does God's election make him unjust? Paul, not at all. Question number two. How then can God blame or judge anyone who isn't saved? Well, it's the very next question that Paul anticipates in Romans chapter 9. He says this, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? You understand the logic, yeah? It's a good question. If God is sovereign and elects only some to salvation, how can he hold those responsible, guilty, to blame, who don't respond to him and his offer of salvation? Now this answer that Paul gives is going to jar with you. He responds in words that jar with our modern, Western culture, where individual rights and free will and our own concept of fairness are sacrosanct. So his reply to that question in verse 20 reads like this. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Let's be honest, those are tough words. It's also very important, as well as God is free genuinely in line with his character to do whatever he wishes and be good and holy and right and just. It's important to note as well that God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility are never set at odds in Scripture. 
The Bible doesn't see those two things in contradiction. Is God sovereign? Well, in that case, he gets his way. Or am I responsible? Do I have a choice? The Bible never puts those in opposition or contradiction to each other, but hand in hand. Have you, have you ever actually, Christmas is coming. Have you, have you sat, try this one day, when you're bored of Uncle Fred at Christmas lunch, you've had enough of the rubbish cracker jokes, you're full of turkey, just sit down and have, have a think about this. Jesus, right, this is the message of Christmas, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Try and work that out. Do you believe it? What, what, why would you believe that? You believe that because the Bible is very clear about it. And I try and understand, I wrestle, I wrestle, I wrestle, and then I bow. And I fall on my knees and I say, you are God and I am not. Similar to that, God's sovereignty never contradicts man's responsibility. God's sovereignty never contradicts man's accountability and it never mitigates man's accountability. Genesis chapter 45 contains a perfect example of this. Joseph is appearing to his brothers in Egypt. I can't give you, have time to give you the background. And he says to them, I am Joseph. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers in this famous story, come close. When they'd done so, he said, see, I am Joseph, who you sold into slavery in Egypt. But now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Who is responsible in that account for Joseph going down to Egypt? Is it God or is it his brother's? Was God sovereign or were his brothers responsible? Which? Both. It's not or. It's and. The Bible has loads of instances like that. The death of Jesus in Acts chapter 4 is described like that. And it's not as if the Bible writers have lost their brain or just can't. No, the Bible, God's ways don't find that a contradiction. So the New Testament writers find no contradiction in holding the offer of salvation to all with God's choice in salvation, such that those who reject Jesus are still seen to be personally sinful and accountable for doing so. Let me help you here with words from Jesus. Jesus seems to have no problem holding these two things together. He says this, John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. God is sovereign, yes? No one can come unless God draws him. John chapter 5, he says to the people, You study the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Oh, which is it, this or that? No, it's both. And in the same passage, Matthew chapter 11, he says this. 
No one, again, saying the same thing, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Sovereignty, yes? The next verse. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Romans chapter 9, in this second question, confronts us with the uncomfortable fact in our culture that God is free to do whatever he wishes consistent with his character. It is his prerogative not to treat all the same, yet without violating his loving, holy, good, merciful character. Question three. So do people... Therefore, have no part or choice in God electing them. Now, for most people, of course, their experience of coming to Jesus for forgiveness in repentance is that they are walking that path they're choosing to do. So I remember when I first made a decision for Jesus when I was 12, I was doing some choosing, no doubt about it. I've prayed with and spoken to others who have become Christians. They are absolutely walking the walk and making a choice. In our own varied ways, we're all like the prodigal son when he came to his senses. But in the same way, one writer says, that Scripture says we love because he first loved us, This doctrine says that we choose God because he first chose us. Before and behind our decision for God is his decision for us. Not simply his foreknowledge about what we will do, but his initiative to awaken the spiritually dead and cause them by his spirit to respond. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, he really did, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. Let me tell you, I am not so arrogant as to think that if the Lord hadn't sought me, I would never have bothered to seek him. His seeking comes first. This doctrine of election tells me that behind and before my move was a greater mover moving me. If you live on earth, as I guess most of you do, (laughs) then you'll know that our experience is of the sun orbiting the earth. The earth to us is static. I haven't felt the earth move. Just lately, there have been no earthquakes around here. It's static. The sun rises in the east, sets in the west. What's truly going on is this. This is mind-blowing. What's really going on is this. The earth is moving through space at 67,000 miles an hour. Do you feel that? Probably not. Your hair would fall off. And the earth at the equator at the same time as it's zooming through space, it is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. Do you feel that? No, not at all. My experience... See, which is the reality? Is it all static? Yep. 
Not much wind, can't feel 67,000 miles an hour of wind. Which is the reality, this or that? Both. It's just that our very real experience is not the whole story. Someone's experience of salvation is that he or she is doing the moving, responding to God, making a decision, and they really are. But behind, before, beyond all of that moving is him moving us towards him. So there are three parts at play in salvation. God's sovereign election, our real response, and those who God uses in prayer and preaching and witnessing and friendship, all in God's sovereign plan coming together to bring people to Jesus Christ. One story and then I'll finish. Hudson Taylor had very bad eyesight as a young man. He had to quit his job in the bank and uh, so he started to work for his father and he was at home one day just rifling through his father's magazines and he came across one of his magazines that was a Christian story about a miner who had come to faith in Jesus. Hudson sat down and read this story and was astonished by it. At the very same time, at the very same time, his mother, who was staying with her sister, was praying earnestly for Hudson, her son. She had this compulsion to pray for him. She prayed, she prayed, she spent three hours praying for him. And she didn't quit until she had some sense of peace that my prayer will be answered. At the very same time, Hudson is reading this story. And as he reads it, uh, this story about this miner, he later wrote this. And with this reading of this story dawned the joyful conviction as light was flashed into my soul by the Spirit that there was nothing to do but to fall down on my knees and accept this Savior and his salvation to praise him forevermore. What's going on there? It's this glorious combination of God sovereignly bringing the one that he's chosen to salvation. Hudson is really reading, really experiencing this drawing to God, and his mother is praying. Can you see what I'm saying? It's not either or. It's this great sovereign plan of God as he brings people to himself. I would say this as I finish. I would say this humbly, carefully, putting the range of biblical evidence together, I take it that all those who choose to come have been chosen. That all those who are chosen will be enabled to choose to come. I find it very, very challenging. I find it very exciting as well to know that God has many in this city. Election tells us that God saves those who can do nothing for themselves. Amazing grace, yes? Amazing grace. An election motivates us to help others know about Jesus, for he has many people in this city who he wants to draw to himself, and he will use us in his purposes. If you've got further questions, I'll be at the front. If you want to know where to go and read some stuff, I'll be here at the front. I wonder if there's anybody here today who has not yet trusted in Jesus for salvation and you are feeling drawn. Don't wait to ask, am I one of the elect? No, you're being drawn. Choose him. Choose him today. If that's you here today and you need forgiveness of your sins, come and speak to me. I'll be here at the end. This week, be excited 
that God has many in this city and he will use you. Your prayers, your preaching, your witnessing in furthering his purposes of bringing in those he has chosen. Let's stand up, please, shall we? Lord, we thank you so much for amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a dead wretch like me. I once was lost, I now am found, was blind, but now I see. Anybody glad about that? I am delighted about that. Thank you, God, for choosing me. Thank you, you have many in this city. Thank you, though, for not treating us like robots, but engaging our wills and choosing us such that we choose you. You are amazing, and we love you very much.